Chapter 4 of The Terror, A Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Gerzinski. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 4. The Spread of the Terror. It is time, I think, for me to make one point clear. I began this history with certain references to an extraordinary accident to an airman whose machine fell to the ground after collision with a huge flock of pigeons, and then to an explosion in a northern munitions factory, an explosion, as I noted, of a very singular kind. Then I deserted the neighborhood of London and the northern district, and dwelt on a mysterious and terrible series of events which occurred in the summer of 1915 in a Welsh county, which I have named, for convenience, Marion. Well, let it be understood at once that all this detail that I have given about the occurrences in Marion does not imply that the county in the far west was alone or especially afflicted by the terror that was over the land. They tell me that in the villages about Dartmoor, the stout Devonshire hearts sank as men's hearts used to sink in the time of plague and pestilence. There was horror, too, about the Norfolk broads, and far up by Perth no one would venture on the path that leads by Scone to the wooded heights above the Tay. And in the industrial districts I met a man by chance one day in an odd London corner who spoke with horror of what a friend had told him. "'Ask no questions, Ned,' he says to me, "'but I tell you, I was in Barnington t'other day, "'and I met a pal who'd seen three hundred coffins "'going out of a works not far from there, "'and then the ship that hovered outside the mouth of the Thames "'with all sails set, and beat to and fro in the wind "'and never answered any hail, and showed no light. "'The forts shot at her and brought down one of the masts, but she went suddenly about with a change of wind under what sail still stood, and then veered down channel, and drove ashore at last on the sandbanks and pine woods of Arcachon, and not a man alive on her, but only rattling heaps of bones. That last voyage of the Semiramis would be something horribly worth telling, but I only heard it at a distance as a yarn and only believed it because it squared with other things that I knew for certain. This, then, is my point. I have written of the terror as it fell on Marion, simply because I have had opportunities of getting close there to what really happened. Third or fourth or fifth hand in the other places, but round about Porth and Merthyr Tegveth, I have spoken with people who have seen the tracks of the terror with their own eyes. Well, I have said that the people of that far western county realized not only that death was abroad in their quiet lanes and on their peaceful hills, but that for some reason it was to be kept all secret. Newspapers might not print any news of it. The very juries summoned to investigate it were allowed to investigate nothing, and so they concluded that this veil of secrecy must somehow be connected with the war and from this position it was not a long way to a further inference that the murderers of innocent men and women and children were either Germans or agents of Germany. It would be just like the Huns, everybody agreed, to think out such a devilish scheme as this, 
and they always thought out their schemes beforehand. They hoped to seize Paris in a few weeks, but when they were beaten on the Marne, they had their trenches on the Asne ready to fall back on. It had all been prepared years before the war, and so, no doubt, they had devised this terrible plan against England in case they could not beat us in open fight. There were people ready, very likely all over the country, who were prepared to murder and destroy everywhere as soon as they got the word. In this way, the Germans intended to sow terror throughout England and fill our hearts with panic and dismay, hoping so to weaken their enemy at home, that he would lose all heart over the war abroad. It was the Zeppelin notion, in another form. They were committing these horrible and mysterious outrages, thinking that we should be frightened out of our wits. It all seemed plausible enough. Germany had by this time perpetrated so many horrors, and had so excelled in devilish ingenuities, that no abomination seemed too abominable to be probable, or too ingeniously wicked to be beyond the tortuous malice of the Hun. But then came the questions as to who the agents of this terrible design were, as to where they lived, as to how they contrived to move unseen from field to field, from lane to lane. All sorts of fantastic attempts were made to answer these questions, but it was felt that they remained unanswered. Some suggested that the murderers landed from submarines, or flew from hiding places on the west coast of Ireland, coming and going by night but there were seen to be flagrant impossibilities in both these suggestions. Everybody agreed that the evil work was no doubt the work of Germany, but nobody could begin to guess how it was done. Somebody at the club asked Remnant for his theory. My theory, said that ingenious person, is that human progress is simply a long march from one inconceivable to another. Look at that airship of ours that came over Porth yesterday. Ten years ago, that would have been an inconceivable sight. Take the steam engine. Stake printing. Take the theory of gravitation. They were all inconceivable till somebody thought of them. So it is, no doubt, with this infernal dodgery that we're talking about. The Huns have found it out, and we haven't. And there you are. We can't conceive how these poor people have been murdered, because the method's inconceivable to us. The club listened with some awe to this high argument. After Remnant had gone, one member said, "'Wonderful man, that!' "'Yes,' said Dr. Lewis. He was asked whether he knew something, and his reply really amounted to, "'No, I don't. But I have never heard it better put.' It was, I suppose, at about this time when the people were puzzling their heads as to the secret methods used by the Germans or their agents to accomplish their crimes that a very singular circumstance became known to a few of the Porth people. It related to the murder of the Williams family, on the highway in front of their cottage door. I do not know that I have made it plain that the old Roman road, called the highway, follows the course of a long steep hill that goes steadily westward, till it slants down and droops towards the sea. On either side of the road the ground falls away, here into deep shadowy woods, here to high pastures, now and again into a field of corn, but for the most part into the wild and broken land that is characteristic of our foam. The fields are long and narrow, stretching up the steep hillside. They fall into sudden dips and hollows, a well springs up in the midst of one, and a grove of ash and thorn bends over it, shading it. 
and beneath it the ground is thick with reeds and rushes. And then may come on either side of such a field territories, glistening with the deep growth of bracken, and rough with gorse and rugged with thickets of blackthorn, green like and hanging strangely from the branches. Such are the lands on either side of the highway. Now on the lower slopes of it, beneath the Williams cottage, some three or four fields down the hill, there is a military camp. The place has been used as a camp for many years, and lately the site has been extended and huts have been erected. But a considerable number of the men were under canvas here in the summer of 1915. On the night of the highway murder, this camp, as it appeared afterwards, was the scene of the extraordinary panic of the horses. A good many men in the camp were asleep in their tents soon after 9.30, when the last post was sounded. They woke up in panic. There was a thundering sound in the steep hillside above them, and down upon the tents came half a dozen horses, mad with fright, trampling the canvas, trampling the men, bruising dozens of them and killing, too. Everything was in wild confusion, men groaning and screaming in the darkness, struggling with the canvas and the twisted ropes, shouting out, some of them, raw lads enough, that the Germans had landed, others wiping the blood from their eyes, a few roused suddenly from heavy sleep, hitting out at one another, officers coming up at the double, roaring out orders to the sergeants, a party of soldiers who were just returning to camp from the village, seized with fright at what they could scarcely see or distinguish, at the wildness of the shouting and cursing and groaning that they could not understand, bolting out of the camp again, and racing for their lives back to the village everything in the maddest confusion of wild disorder. Some of the men had seen the horses galloping down the hill as if terror itself was driving them. They scattered off into the darkness, and somehow or another found their way back in the night to their pasture above the camp. They were grazing there peacefully in the morning, and the only sign of the panic of the night before was the mud they had scattered all over themselves as they pelted through a patch of wet ground. The farmer said they were as quiet a lot as any in Marion. He could make nothing of it. Indeed, he said, I believe they must have seen the devil himself to be in such a fright as that, save the people. Now all this was kept as quiet as might be at the time when it happened. It became known to the men of the Porth Club in the days when they were discussing the difficult question of the German outrages, as the murders were commonly called. And this wild stampede of the farm horses was held by some to be evidence of the extraordinary and unheard of character of the dreadful agency that was at work. One of the members of the club had been told by an officer who was in the camp at the time of the panic that the horses that came charging down were in a perfect fury of fright, that he had never seen horses in such a state, and so there was endless speculation as to the nature of the sight or the sound that had driven half a dozen quiet beasts into raging madness. Then in the middle of this talk, two or three other incidences, quite as odd and incomprehensible, came to be known, borne on chance trickles of gossip that came into the towns from outland farms, or were carried by cottagers tramping into Porth on market day with a fowl or two and eggs and garden stuff, scraps and fragments of talk gathered by servants from the country folk and repeated to their mistresses. And in such ways it came out that up at Plas Newid, 
there had been a terrible business over swarming the bees they had turned as wild as wasps and much more savage they had come about the people who were taking the swarms like a cloud they settled on one man's face so that you could not see the flesh for the bees crawling all over it and they had stung him so badly that the doctor did not know whether he would get over it and they had chased a girl who had come out to see the swarming and settled on her and stung her to death then they had gone off to a break below the farm and got into a hollow tree there and it was not safe to go near it for they would come out at you by day or by night and much the same thing had happened it seemed at three or four farms and cottages where bees were kept and there were stories hardly so clear or so credible of sheep-dogs mild and trusted beasts turning as savage as wolves and injuring the farm boys in a horrible manner in one case it was said with fatal results it was certainly true that old mrs owen's favorite brahma dorking cock had gone mad she came into porth one saturday morning with her face and her neck all bound up and plastered she had gone out to her bit of a field to feed the poultry the night before and the bird had flown at her and attacked her most savagely inflicting some very nasty wounds before she could beat it off there was a stake handy lucky for me she said and i did beat him and beat him till the life was out of him but what has come to the world whatever now remnant the man of theories was also a man of extreme leisure it was understood that he had succeeded to ample means when he was quite a young man and after tasting the savours of the law as it were for half a dozen terms at the board of the middle temple he had decided that it would be senseless to bother himself with passing examinations for a profession which he had not the faintest intention of practising so he turned a deaf ear to the call of manger ringing through the temple courts and set himself out to potter amiably through the world he had pottered all over europe he had looked at africa and had even put his head in a door of the east on a trip which included the greek isles and constantinople now getting into the middle fifties he had settled at porth for the sake as he said of the gulf stream and the fuchsia hedges and pottered over his books and his theories and the local gossip he was no more brutal than the general public which revels in the details of mysterious crime but it must be said that the terror black though it was was a boon to him he peered and investigated and poked about with the relish of a man whose life a new zest has been added he listened attentively to the strange tales of bees and dogs and poultry that came into porth with the country baskets of butter rabbits and green peas and he evolved at last a most extraordinary theory full of this discovery as he thought it he went one night to see dr lewis and take his view of the matter i want to talk to you said remnant to the doctor about what i have called provisionally the z-ray end of chapter four <laughs>